Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend marks the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. It is the 24th proper, if you go about the proper numbers, and we are looking at our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7, our epistle from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 10, and then our gospel text is Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Maybe the strongest connection that you're going to see and, and pick up on between the Old Testament and the gospel reading this week is going to be the idea of the kings. Cyrus is mentioned in the Old Testament, king of Persia, and then Caesar, and they don't they call him emperor, but Essentially, the king of the Roman Empire is is at play in the gospel reading. So we're going to see how God is working in and through authority just a little bit this week. We begin with the Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. Now, the context of this, Isaiah is God's prophet, and he writes somewhere in the range of 740 through 681 BC, as he serves as God's prophet to the nation of Israel and Judah. And this text in particular is one of the texts, one of the things in the book that causes a lot of trouble to modern scholars. It is unfortunate. I personally don't put much stock into modern biblical scholarship. I mean, it's really sad, but most of the stuff that you would pick up on the shelf, if you're trying to find a commentary, if you're trying to find something that will help you study God's word, most of the people writing that stuff today don't really believe it's God's word. And so they look at Isaiah, they look at him prophesying about a man who's not even born yet and calling him by name. And they say that no man could have done this. Isaiah could not have prophesied could not have prophesied this, could not have possibly known this. So this book must have been written, or at least this part of this book must have been written by someone else later and stuck back in. That's That feels like, it seems like the dominant view, unfortunately, of Christian scholarship today. So that's why I don't put much stock in what I find. Um, you got to study God's word. Find good resources if you're looking for them. Let me know. I'm happy to help. But trust. Trust in the Lord. He is faithful. And his word is a gift to us that points us to Jesus. So if you can't trust in something as, as simple as God being able to tell what happens next, your ability to trust in Jesus as your Savior is, well, thrown out the window. So we begin. Let's look at our text. We're just going to take the whole text here for this one. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. 
I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places, that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh, who does all these things. So again, Cyrus does not become king of Persia until 559 BC. That's over a hundred years after Isaiah has already been dead. And Cyrus will reign through 530, so a good 29 years would be the length of his ministry and service in that role. Now, God, verse 1 here, says to his anointed. We remember the Old Testament word anoint means to pour oil on someone, but it's also to set them apart for a very specific function. We see three types of people anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. Cyrus is going to serve one of those roles. He is going to be a king, and more specifically, with the way all this works historically, he is king of Israel, when you think about it. So to kind of go through it here, how this looks, God's people formed a nation. They became the people of Israel as they came up out of the land of Egypt around 1400 BC. And they grow in the promised land and they, they thrive in that place. But then they, they turn to kings. They reject God as their king. They turn to their own kings. He gives them Saul. Saul is replaced because of faithlessness by David. David, uh, then by his son Solomon. Solomon's son Rehoboam. Rehoboam's foolishness loses most of the kingdom. It splits. Uh, and the northern ten tribes leave, uh, following a man named Jeroboam. And only Judah and Benjamin continue to follow Rehoboam. So you've got Israel to the north now. Judah to the south are the names of these two new nations. That happens probably just a little after 1000 BC. So in the, the I guess that would be the nine, early 900s, 990, 980, somewhere in that range probably, where that split occurs. Faithlessness, continued faithlessness on behalf of the northern kingdom results in their destruction at the hand of Assyria in 722 BC. God then judges Assyria for their faithlessness and sends Babylon to do it. So God uses Assyria to defeat Israel. He uses Babylon to defeat Assyria. He also uses Babylon to defeat Judah in 587 BC, as the Judaites had also rebelled against and rejected God as their Lord. So God brings about judgment. He brings about punishment for that, the earned consequence of our sins. But just as he had used Babylon to destroy wicked Assyria, another of his tools, now he does it again. 
He's going to raise up this man named Cyrus and use him to destroy Babylon. Now, at the time of these three empires, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, we're talking about the world powers. Keep that in mind. These are the, the global military mights. Assyria's, all three of them would be off to the east of the what you normally think of as the land of Israel. Babylon is often compared to modern-day Iraq, but probably vastly larger territory here is these were empires. They stretched a far distance. And because Persia eventually conquers Babylon, who had conquered Judah, when Cyrus sends these people home, which he does eventually, he lets them return to their homeland and rebuild, that homeland of Jerusalem is still a part of this Persian empire at that point in history. And you're talking 537 BC now. And that means that even though they're free to live and follow the Lord their God, Cyrus is still their acting king. He sends governors to care for them in the, the more direct sense because, again, Persia is a sprawling empire. And it would be hard to, to rule over that without help. And so governors are established, and uh, satraps was one of the names that they had for their officials in the Persian Empire. Those kinds of things. It's a picture to keep in mind, but that does fit with this idea of Old Testament anointing, that Cyrus is God's anointed one for this purpose of bringing, is, bringing his people, God's people, back from their destruction that they had faced since they have repented. Still in verse 1, right hand I have grasped. You can almost picture it like being a parent and, and leading a child. The Lord is the one who's going to lead the way here. The Lord is the one who's really going to act. I mean, the other way to look at this right hand idea is that's your strength. Your right hand is your weapon, your fighting arm. And so God has taken Cyrus by the fighting arm. God is his fighting arm. Be another way to kind of read that to subdue nations. So again, God is the one who's going to fight for him. To loose the belts of kings uh, is a reference really most likely to removing their weapons, rendering them pretty much harmless. So your your belt held your, your sword. You think of a, a soldier sheathing his, his sword on his belt in a scabbard. And so God has loosened the belts of kings. He's removed their ability to fight back. Open doors, not closed gates. You think of what was common in most of the, the human's history, the idea of siege warfare, that you'd have a city, you'd try and fortify it and defend it as best you could. And if an army fought against you, they would often camp outside of your city for months, sometimes even a couple of years, just waiting you out letting you starve. The picture here, gates will be open. The armies won't have to wait outside. This isn't going to take years on end. This is going to be swift. They'll be able to go right on in and defeat their enemy. And then verse 2 continues that same picture. Uh, the exalted places will be leveled. God will bring them down, essentially. And you picture hills and valleys and and God is going to level it. He's going to take the enemy that has exalted himself or themselves, and he's going to level them. He's going to humble them. 
He's going to bring them down from their mighty thrones by the use of King Cyrus. And then also verse 2, breaking down the uh, breaking in pieces doors of bronze and cutting through bars of iron indicates that these these places will not be able to defend against God's attack. Most of again this siege warfare kind of picture, you're talking about cities that are built out of sometimes timber, uh, sometimes stone. But imagine a city built out of bronze, you know, a solid metal fortress. It's almost the picture here, and yet it's not going to prevent God's attack. It cannot protect from what God is bringing. God's judgment is not something we can avoid. No one can. No one has. Verse 3, God will reward Cyrus by giving him treasures of darkness, hordes, and secret places. So, you know, even the things that they may have been trying to hide, Cyrus will loot. loot. He will loot the lands. And then uh, the second part of verse 3, that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, who call you by your name. That is a very much a true statement here that it is God who calls by name. And this is something we actually see reflected in Scripture. So if you were to read Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, you actually see written in Scripture the spoken word of King Cyrus. As Cyrus decrees, after having defeated Babylon, that these Jews are free to return to their home and rebuild. But as he does that, he admits, he calls Yahweh by name, and he admits that God has given him all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 4, For the sake of my servant Jacob, Cyrus is being raised up in order to serve God and God's people. God is going to do this well, actually, you're seeing multiple reasons now. He's doing this for Cyrus, so Cyrus will know Yahweh. He's doing this for his own people, so that they will know that Yahweh is there for them. And then verse 4, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. This could be a reference simply to the idea here that Cyrus is not born. It is impossible for Cyrus at this point to know God, and yet God already knows him. And already knows the plans that he has for him. The other way to read this is to consider you do not know me as a reference to unbelief. Now it's possible. If you're just going by the words of scripture, it looks like Cyrus comes to faith. And he calls Yahweh by name in Ezra chapter 1, which is great to see a worldly king do. But then again, we have a piece of archaeological evidence from, I think it was unearthed in the 19th century called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it has Cyrus's recordings of, of some of his military conquests and what happened in the aftermath, which is a really great archaeological piece. I mean, it tells us that what we see in scripture is true, 
that Cyrus had a practice of when he conquered a land, taking any captives that live there and sending them home and even helping them to reestablish and rebuild their homes. So that gives weight. It's always neat to find external evidence of scripture. Unfortunately, on the Cyrus cylinder, which seems to be dated pretty late in his, his reign as king, Cyrus does talk about the Babylonian god uh, by the name, I believe Marduk is the name that shows up. So if it's like what we see in the rest of the book of Ezra with Darius and Artaxerxes, the future kings of, of Persia, they just lump Yahweh in as another one of many gods. They just fit him into their polytheistic worldview. It seems like that's probably the case for Cyrus as well. It would be great if I'm wrong, and when we get to paradise, we meet Cyrus or any of those those kings. Uh, I mean, that's the Christian view, really. We want everybody to be in paradise. God does not want anyone to die, but sent his son Jesus for all people. Verse 5, there is no other God besides Yahweh, I mean, that's a common Old Testament theme, really even New Testament theme too, although you don't see the divine name in the New Testament as Yahweh any longer. You only see the divine name Jesus. So a bit of a shift in terms of how we talk about our God. But at the same time, we continue to talk about him by what he has done for us. Jesus means he saves. And so we talk about what he has done whenever we call him by his name. Yahweh means he is, and so it gives you the opportunity to reflect on who God is and what he's done for you. I equip you, though you do not know me. This is especially true for Cyrus as God is preparing him to, for this specific task, the, the role that he has anointed him for to begin with. But it's also true of everyone. Whatever you have has been given to you by the Lord whether it's a physical belonging, um, you know, you think of your house or your clothing or your car, those things are gifts of the Lord that he has given to you. But also your skills and your interests, your personalities, he has given you all of those as well. And we use all of those things in service to the Lord and for the good of his kingdom. Verse 6, so we saw back in verse 3, that part of this is so that Cyrus will know Yahweh, verse 4, so that the Israelites, his God's own people, will see him working for them. And now in verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. So the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. There is none besides me. God's deeds, God's work through Cyrus the king, will be so that all of creation knows Yahweh, knows who he is, knows his strength, knows what he can do, and knows what he will do. And that's the goal of all of this, is that God will care for his people. And so God's wondrous working through even the foreign nations is for the goal, we would call it evangelism, that people would come to have faith in him. I mean, we see this even going back to the plagues. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, we are actually told why the plagues happen that it is so that the Egyptians will come to know that he is Yahweh. God desires not the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their evil ways and live. 
from the prophet Ezekiel. Now, verse 7 is one that probably causes some grief, um, some struggles for Christians today. Because it attributes everything to God. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being, create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. In our nice little ideas about who God is, we often try to limit him. We often try to look at just the, just the comforting parts of who God is. I mean, even think of pictures of Jesus, right? When you see pictures of Jesus, how is he portrayed? We see him with a soft face, usually with a smile on his face, acting and dealing kindly with people, or you get the shepherd Jesus, and so you've got him carrying the little sheep over his shoulders. He just looks so gentle, like you could just go hug the guy. But is that how Jesus always was? Do we not have to wrestle with the idea of a Jesus who knows the seriousness of our sins, in fact, even came to die because of how serious our sins were? Do we not have to wrestle with the Jesus who turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple during Holy Week? Do we not have to deal with the Jesus who gets angry with the Pharisees because they try to trap him time and time again? Do we not have to deal with the Jesus who, who, who shows frustration with his disciples because they continuously just don't understand? And so here in the Old Testament, too, there are these things that we hear about God that just don't fit that comfortable picture we have. And this is one of them. God is the one who forms the light and creates the darkness. He is the one who makes well-being and creates calamity. All things are done by God. It may not be a verse that we are able to wrap our minds around fully. It may cause us some struggles, but God is God. He is above us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. And sometimes we as people just need to let the creator be the creator. The illustration he uses in the book of Isaiah a couple of times is the, the potter and the clay. We are the clay. I mean, you think of a potter using a spinning wheel and making a pot. The pot cannot speak to its it's potter and tell them how to do it. The pot is just acted upon, created, given a purpose. God is the potter. He has created us. He has given us purpose. He has cared for us and continues to do so. We just do what the Lord gives us to do, and we trust in him above all things. Now, our epistle reading comes from Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. So this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
grace to you and peace. I'm going to stop right there just for a moment. That's the introduction really to the whole letter. It's the greetings that you would put at the start of a letter. So we'll take it to introduce this letter. So Paul, um, one of the apostles, one of the 13 apostles, probably the one that the church knows best as we think about it today because he's written so much of the New Testament for us. So we have Paul, and then we have Silas or Silvanus, and then we have Timothy. Silvanus or Silas was part of the, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, and Timothy is from the city of Lystra. And so Paul is actually going to interact with both of these two men. He's going to end up teaching them both many things. Uh, you could almost look at them as being discipled by him. Uh, it is Paul who preaches in Lystra and likely converts Timothy's family, and then Timothy's family teaches him. Silas and Timothy both end up traveling with Paul on the second missionary journey that he takes. And this letter comes on the heels of that journey. So that journey is from 49 to 51 AD. This letter is written in 51 AD as he writes to this church that he has that previous relationship with. He has been to Thessalonica and planted the church in Thessalonica, which you can read about in part in Acts chapter 17. Now, the church of the Thessalonians. So Thessalonians are people from Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, which is really, so you look at the Mediterranean Sea, and there's a, a smaller sea called the Aegean Sea that sticks off to the north side. And there's an island, there's, well, I guess, you, what do you call it, a peninsula, the land that sticks out into the sea um, that comes down and that, that to the west of the Aegean Sea, that peninsula, that land, is both Macedonia and Achaia that we're going to see here in a little bit. And on the very northwest part of the Aegean Sea there in that land is this city of Thessalonica. It's close to the water, but I, don't, I couldn't tell from the map I looked at if we should consider it a port city or not. Paul extends from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ grace and peace to these Christian brothers and sisters. Now, this is a common greeting, and you'll see it from time to time as you, you read through the New Testament, certainly. We can use it to greet one another, really, if we wanted to. But let's actually look at the words. Let's take a moment and reflect on this. It's the kind of language I think we probably normally take for granted because it, it shows up at basically the start of each epistle. What is grace? When I teach the confirmation students or the kids in the congregation um, about this grace idea, grace and mercy are often confused or confusing for the Christian. And I heard it a long time ago, a helpful way to keep grace and mercy separate in your mind Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. So I deserve God's wrath, but it is his mercy that he spares me from that. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. So I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve to go to paradise. 
and yet God gives me these things. You can see how closely related they are, but I'm hoping that helps you to wrap your mind a little bit around these biblical words that show up so frequently. Um, I, I found it to be a helpful way to at least share that in part with, with those who are, are seeking to learn more about God's word. So grace to you, the gifts of God that he has for you, gifts of life, forgiveness, um, paradise, the things that we have in Jesus through his word and through his sacrament. Paul is wishing those gifts of God upon the Thessalonian people. That's a kind, a kind way to greet someone. God's grace be with you. Could be a way we might say it to each other today. And then you have peace. And you might be familiar with this common greeting from Jesus as he meets his disciples post-resurrection. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. We, we often have a trouble troublesome time identifying peace as well. I think most people today probably think of peace and they think of almost a, maybe a state of mind. They're not anxious. They're not worried. They're not stressed out over work. They're just at rest. Peace. But peace is a stronger word than that. Instead, probably a good way to consider this would be like a, a treaty, a peace treaty, signed between two nations that have been at war with each other, fighting one another. The peace of God is that we are now reconciled to him. That you, as a wicked and rebellious sinner who had despised God and had you had the opportunity, would have spit in his face, and I say that of myself as well. We deserve nothing but God's wrath. We wanted it, really, for ourselves. We wanted to live life our way and be our own gods. We were at war with God. And so this peace idea is that reconciliation that we have in Jesus Christ. You have been reconciled. You have been saved. Your sins have been forgiven. There is no longer a giant chasm that separates you from your creator. That's a bit of a stronger picture for this word peace than just that state of mind that says, okay, I'm not stressed out right now. This is a wholeness, a restoration of you to the Creator. The Lord of all things, the one who both makes, what was it, how was it phrased? Who makes well-being and creates calamity. You have peace with him, not war. You're no longer fighting against him, and he's not going to judge you with his wrath. You have peace. So really a profound greeting when we stop to unpack words that we normally take for granted and I think just read over. All right, we'll take the rest of the text together, verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, 
and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a lot here in this, well, I guess it's a bit of a longer paragraph. Paul's good at that. He likes run-on sentences in particular. Greek translation for students is usually pretty tough with Paul. But he begins this section, really the letter, by saying that he is thankful. And we, so not just Paul, but those that travel with him, including Timothy and Silas that he's already introduced here, they give thanks for these faithful brothers they are rejoicing that God's kingdom includes these people too. And they take them to the Lord in prayer. So um, they might be praying for the Lord's strength, uh, provision, encouragement, uh, help in, in continuing to do what they're already doing. This is a very favorful writing here. And Paul is complimentary of them compared to other letters where he speaks more harshly here he's speaking very in a way that is very encouraging and and speaks highly of this group of people so he remembers three things in prayer your work of faith labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our lord jesus christ you might pick up on these three words faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love from the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 and Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. So these are more words that we could dig into if we want to. So faith is trusting in the Lord. So it is by faith that the Thessalonian people are, are serving God and their labors are of love. Um, so love is caring for someone else. And so they are serving the people around them. They are caring for them. They are sharing the gospel with them. And then a steadfastness, something that is steadfast is immovable. Um, you think of strength here. You think of someone who cannot be shaken out of their position or faith. And so their steadfastness, their steadfastness is in hope that is in Jesus. So why are they able to trust in God as they work? Why are they able to love their neighbor and serve their neighbor? Because they know Christ. And they know what they have in the promises of Christ. They are forgiven. They have that peace and that grace that we were talking about before. Verse 4, God has chosen you. You could take that to have a conversation 
uh, about the idea that we don't choose God. We don't choose to believe in him or follow him, but rather he does choose us. He brings us to repent. He brings us to faith. That conversation could be included in this. Um, but I think uh, another connection you want to make here, and probably what is closer to what Paul is getting at, is what we heard about Cyrus at the beginning of our Old Testament reading. God had chosen Cyrus. God has appointed Cyrus, anointed Cyrus for a task. So God has chosen this people to be part of his family and to serve him in his kingdom. He is working through them for the sake of the gospel. Verse 5, um, the gospel came to them. Yes, in word, they heard the gospel proclaimed, but also in power, which is going to be a reference to miracles. So they got to see the miracles of the apostles and then also the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, again, who creates faith and causes us to repent in the first place. They are now, they, they receive the gospel with full conviction because the Holy Spirit convicted them. The Holy Spirit convinced them um, and gave them this faith that they have. Now, also verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. A couple of things here. The first, well, it all goes together. So this is part of both Paul and Peter when you're reading the New Testament, and Jesus as well. But Paul and Peter's epistles are going to again and again lift up before you this idea that we are not to live our lives for ourselves, but for the sake of the people around us. Why can Peter talk so highly of suffering? Because in your suffering, when it looks like everything should be lost and everything should be despair and you should just lose all hope, your enemy, the one who is afflicting you, the one who is hurting you, will notice that that's not the case. They'll notice that you still stand. They'll notice that you still have hope and you still have joy and it won't make a lick of sense to them. And it gives you the opportunity to share with them that hope that is in you. In other words, to share the gospel, to tell them of what Christ has done for you and has also done for them. So we don't live for our sake. We weren't created to live for our sake. Going back to Genesis 1, we were created to care for creation, and part of creation is your neighbor. We are creatures too. And so we care not for ourselves, but for those around us, and we do so primarily with the gospel. Not only with the gospel, but it is it is often the church problem today that we do it the other way around. We are really good at mercy work. That is, you know, feeding the hungry and clothing those who need the clothing. Those kinds of projects and those are good and we should do those things. But I think oftentimes we forget to include the gospel, which is needed more than anything else. So gospel is is primary. The other mercy works that we do are good, but we want to have the gospel, we want to share the gospel with them if we possibly can. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were living examples of this. As they were there in Thessalonica, they lived this way. They did not live for themselves, but they lived for the good of the people in that community, and they lived to teach them the gospel. 
And so now Paul is calling them in verse 6 to be imitators of this and of the Lord. He writes that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 as well. So not an uncommon note for him in his epistles. For you received the word in much affliction. Now that's, that's a note back to Acts chapter 17, where you can read about the beginning of this church in Thessalonica. But notice something here. The Thessalonians' faith received affliction. Paul, in his faith, was afflicted. Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, was afflicted. Persecution is a major central theme in Scripture. The persecution of a Christian is guaranteed by the New Testament. And so Paul is lifting these people up, that they have endured their persecution. And again, you can read about that in Acts in the first verses there of Acts chapter 17, you can read about what happened to Jason as he came to faith, for example. Paul is encouraging them to imitate him and to imitate the Lord and how they lived in the midst of their suffering. That is, not focusing on themselves, but living each and every day, every moment that they could for the sake of those around them. We know what Christ did for us. We know what he endured on the cross. We know what he endured even before he went to the cross, all the trials for Herod and Pilate uh, and the chief priests, the mockery he endured from the soldiers, the, the beatings, the lashings he endured from the soldiers. And he endured all of this for you and for me. And so we are called, as Jesus did, as Paul did, with his six years plus in prison, we are called to love our neighbor and not to focus on ourselves. With joy of the Holy Spirit. I like to talk about joy as being a treasure. Um, so the Thessalonians are imitators of Paul because they have this treasure that is the faith, that is the Holy Spirit in them. And they have become that example. Just as Paul was that example to others, they have become that example throughout that whole land region um, that comes down in between the Ionian and Aegean seas. So Macedonia is the northern part of that land mass, and Achaia is the southern part of that. In Achaia, you're, well, in Macedonia, you would also find Philippi and Berea, a couple of New Testament cities you're probably aware of. And then in the uh, place down south in Achaia, you're not going to find as many biblical cities. But is it, what is it, Smyrna? No, sorry, Sparta. Sparta's down there in Achaia. You could even perhaps say that Athens is part of that space. Delphi. So you've got really some major Greek cities um, that, that end up being part of that list. Of, of places in, in this area that are hearing of the, the work of these people in Thessalonica. They have become a missionary church. The, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them. So they're sharing the gospel, but also their faith, so that we need not say anything. 
That's an interesting phrase. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Essentially, what Paul is saying here in verses 8 and 9 is that not only are the Thessalonians doing what they should be doing, but because they're doing it, word is getting around. Paul doesn't even have to share the story of the Thessalonian church when he goes places. When he goes places, people are already telling him about what happened when Paul was in Thessalonica, what happened when he shared the faith there. So the word is getting around, and this is such a wonderful thing, as, as the faith is, is being shared from community to community. And as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. How they repented, how they turned to God from their idols, and now they serve the living and true God. Verse 10, they are waiting for his son from heaven. This is an important theme in this letter. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 in particular is quite known among Christian churches and taught among Christian churches, especially those who, who like to hold to um, premillennial or dispensational ideas about the end times. Um, we don't have that chapter today. That's a few weeks away. So we're going to sit on this one for a little bit. First Thessalonians chapter 4 is our text for the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. So hold those questions for three weeks. Even send me your questions if you want to, and we can address them in the show uh, coming up. But for now, simply noting God has raised Jesus from the dead, the Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So judgment day in hell that we so deserve. Jesus has saved us. He has spared us from those things by his death and by his resurrection. We are forgiven. We have peace with God and we get to live forever. And so we wait. We wait in hope. That brings us to our gospel reading today, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Now, the context for this one before we read it, and it's just a paragraph, so we're going to leave it at that. But the context here, you are in the middle of Holy Week now. Um, likely here we'd be saying that we're on Tuesday, um, as the events that are unfolding, chapter 21, brings you into Holy Week with Palm Sunday. Uh, Monday, Jesus curses the fig tree. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday end up being fairly quiet days kind of in terms of events that occur on those days. But as we normally talk about what occurs on Tuesday and Wednesday, the only thing we really usually end up saying about Jesus is that he taught in the temple. So he was spending most of that time teaching. I, sometimes I jokingly call it with, with people teaching Tuesday. I think the official name in Holy Week for it is Holy Tuesday. So you've got Palm Sunday, Fig Monday, Holy Tuesday. Um, you've got Spy Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday. So, Teaching Tuesday, that's what he was up to most of that day. Now, it also immediately follows the parable of the wedding feast. So, Jesus was just speaking to the crowd. He was teaching them this idea that those who, whom God had originally invited to his paradise have rejected that. Um, that was the Jewish people of old. 
and you can include the Pharisees in that. They were the ones first invited. This is the New Testament idea that the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So in the parable, you have the rejection of the first group. They will not come. In fact, they even beat and kill those that God sent to them to invite them. And so instead, God brings judgment upon them and then sends the disciples out into the streets to gather anyone that will come to invite all people to this wedding feast. And the, the hall ends up full. So that's the Gentile connection there for us. So that's the previous parable. It's only half of it. There's the other side of it too, about the guy that gets in afterward, but not necessary for, for our conversation now, because he's very similar to the, those who first rejected and that he is also not following Christ. He's not following the savior. So now we're going to hear about the Pharisees and what happens next. Verses 15 to 22 of Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is not the first time in Holy Week that we have seen Jesus and the Pharisees clashing with one another. In fact, at the end of chapter 21, the Pharisees have already determined that Jesus is speaking against them, and they want to destroy him. They want to get rid of him, but they fear the crowds, and so they stop. They don't. They don't act. And so what we see here in verse 15 is the Pharisees attempt to get Jesus to destroy himself. Essentially, we can't touch him, but if we can turn the people against him or the government against him, then the problem will be taken care of for us. That's the goal of this trap. They're baiting him into this position where one of those two groups of people will harshly turn against him. We'll talk about that when we get down to the trap question in a little bit. So the Pharisees send their students. A disciple is a learner. A disciple in Greek is mathetes, which means it comes from the Greek verb to learn. And so if you are a disciple, it means you are a learner. And we are all disciples of someone or something, usually many someones or somethings. Um, I'm a disciple of the things that I you know, like to watch on TV. If you if you're follow the same news channel over and over again, you are a disciple of that news channel. Um, we're, we are called to be disciples of Jesus. We might extend it just a little further and say we are disciples of our parents in a biblical sense. That's about as far as you would want to push it. But we allow ourselves to be discipled by so many worldly influences um, outside of that. Now, we are also to make disciples. So 
I just heard somebody the other day asking or sharing a, a helpful question for Christians to encourage us. Who are you discipling? Interesting to think about. Anyway, this disciple idea here showing up in the text. The Pharisees have a group of younger men that they are discipling. They are training another generation of Pharisees to take over for them and to be leaders of the, the Jewish church in the years to come. Now, not just the Pharisees' disciples, but also the Herodians. So the Herodians are a group of Jewish people who support Herod's rule and who support the Roman rule over Judah and Jerusalem. So you've got two different groups, and they're working together against Jesus here. So they come before Jesus, and they lie. I mean, they outright lie. Uh, they say, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. What's interesting about that is they're actually right, and yet it's still a lie because they don't believe it, right? Again, they're there to trap him. They don't believe the things that they're saying. It's a facade. It's a fake. But the words are true. Jesus is true, and he does teach the way of God truthfully. He's the only one who does. And then the next part, you do not care about anyone's opinion. That is also true. Jesus doesn't care what people think of him. And it's supposed to be true of us today in the church. We are not to care what the people around us think of us. When I preach the gospel, I'm going to offend people. That's just what it is. I should not allow somebody getting angry at me or hating me because I speak of Jesus to prevent me from speaking Jesus. And I also, on the other side of that, should not show favoritism to groups that like me because I preach Jesus. I'm just called to do what I'm called to do. And so that's the, the life of the Christian that we're called to and fitting here. But the other part to this is that it is very much so a part of the trap. You do not care about anyone's opinion. They are flattering him. They are buttering him up. They're trying to lure him or seduce him into giving an answer that will get him hosted or worse, arrested or killed. Surely, good teacher, you will answer this truthfully and without caring about the opinion of people. You won't allow the opinions of men to sway you. You are not swayed by appearances. So not only does he not care about their opinion, he doesn't He doesn't have to, what's the good way to put it, brown nose? He doesn't have to, to try and make people like him. He doesn't have to, well, he doesn't even allow, he doesn't allow the others position or status or wealth to impact him either. So Jesus isn't going to just give the answer to this question that makes one group feel uh, feel better towards him than another. But he's also not just going to do this. He's not going to give an answer to this question based on trying to get in into somebody else's pocket. I mean, we'll put it that way to have the government like him. He doesn't care having trouble distinguishing between those two things. They are they are different, but they're so very similar. 
Uh, to give you an example, maybe an example will help here. Not swayed by appearances. He doesn't judge people on their status. This would be like, you know, somebody comes to your church on Sunday morning and they're driving a beat up old, old car and they get out and they, you know, they just look ho-hum and you know, they come in. And so you respond to them one way, but then you have somebody pull up in a hundred thousand dollar car. You know, the ones that have the doors that swing upward instead of outward when they open, they pull up in one of those things and they get out and they're dressed spectacularly famous, uh, fabulously, whatever. And, and all of a sudden you see people kind of going up to them, going out of their way to greet this person. That's the picture here. Favoritism. Jesus does not respond differently because different people are present. There's not a need for it. Tell us then what you think. So now they ask him the trap question. Is it lawful to pay his taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, what makes this a trap question? What makes it bait for Jesus to get in trouble? There are two answers to the question, right? I mean, in hindsight, you already know what Jesus is going to answer, and we've already read it today. But if you're an outsider to this, if you've never heard this text before, you would think Jesus has two answers. He could say, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, or he could say, no, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar. What happens when he says either of those things? If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, the people around him, the crowds that have loved him and adored him there in Jerusalem, they'll turn on him. They hate Rome. They feel like they're being oppressed by Rome. And to have Jesus side with Rome when the people believe he is the Messiah who has come to overthrow Rome, that's not going to work out too well. So if the Pharisees can get the crowds to turn against Jesus, then the Pharisees will be able, again, chapter 21, verse 46, they stopped because they were afraid of the crowds. Pharisees will be able to do to Jesus whatever they want to do, and the crowds won't care. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, Rome gets upset. Now the Pharisees don't have to worry about anything because here comes the Roman guard. The soldiers that are stationed in that place will arrest Jesus for inciting insurrection against the Roman Empire, for thwarting Caesar. So they think that they have very cleverly devised a question that Jesus cannot get out of. This isn't the first time that they've tried to trap him. It's not the last. Should be. <laughs> they they haven't learned just yet. Jesus sees right through it. He understands their bait. He understands their lies. Why put me to the test? A good question. I mean, why even bother? You've done it before. It hasn't done anything. Why are you doing it again? You hypocrites. Now, the Greek word hypocrite actually means it's a reference to someone who wears a mask. So you wear a mask to hide who you really are. Um, we might actually think of actors today, um, people who pretend to be something that they're not. These men were literally, well, not literally, they didn't actually have a physical mask on. They are metaphorically hypocrites in this sense. So, and this is what the word becomes, uh, comes to mean for us. 
They are wearing masks. They are not showing their true selves. They are lying. They are pretending to be something that they aren't. They are not followers of Christ. They do not believe he speaks truly and that he speaks from God. They're pretending to. They're pretending to be part of the crowd that has come to adore Jesus. So Jesus responds, show me the coin for the tax. And they bring him one. They bring him a denarius, which is the Roman coin that essentially in their culture represented a day's pay. So you work a hard day of labor in the field, this is your pay for it. Or you spend a day in the bakery making bread, here's your pay for it, whatever it may be. One day's labor, denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? So Jesus is now turning the question back on them. It is the likeness, by the way, of Tiberius Caesar, and the inscription reads, Son of the Divine Augustus. Just in case you were curious what a Roman coin at that time may have looked like. They responded, Caesar's. So they answer rightly, truly, kind of. We're going to get back to that. Jesus said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Very famous answer. You've heard it before. You know this response of Jesus. Um, it is thought to be perhaps one of his wise statements that he makes. He gets out of their trap, all that kind of stuff. I mean, they, their response is they marvel. They can't believe it, and they leave. Well, let's look at that first. Let's look at them leaving. They didn't change masters. Remember, these are disciples of, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees just threw a great trap at Jesus, and he wriggled right out of it. But they don't, they don't change. They don't convert. They stay disciples of the same group. They don't leave the Pharisees to follow Jesus. That's a part of this text. I don't know how often we actually pick apart. The other thing that we don't normally do, though, is actually break down what it is that Jesus said. I mean, how did he get out of this trap? Well, I mean, that seems very worldly wisdom, right? It, hey, this has Caesar's face on it. So go ahead and give to Caesar what belongs to him anyway. And give to God what is God's. What's Jesus getting at there? Well, here's the thing. What actually belongs to Caesar? I'm leaving some silence there because the answer is nothing. When we take a step back and we actually think about it, everything belongs to God. Everything, the whole world, belongs to the Lord. Cattle on a thousand hills. Any governing authority we have in this world, including Caesar, is only there because God has given them that authority. And he can take it from them if he wants to. So what actually belongs to Caesar? Does the coin belong to Caesar? No, it does not. It belongs to God. That's an interesting way to actually break down this text. Now, we do take a step back. God has given us governing authorities. He has told us to obey them. So if our governing authority tells us to pay taxes, we pay taxes. Unfortunately, even if they tell us to pay 80% of our taxes, of our income to them as taxes, You'd be hard-pressed to make a biblical argument that says you don't do it. And it's not because of this text, not at all. 
not in my mind at least. This text is a, it's Jesus getting out of the trap for sure. But it also calls on us to acknowledge the truth, the reality, that everything belongs to God. And just as we were talking about in the first Thessalonians epistle text, that we should be living not for ourselves, but for the Lord and for our neighbor. Really, that comes down to what Jesus ends up saying here. Give to God the things that are God's. Everything that you have is a gift that he has entrusted to you. And we are to use those things in service to him. And we do that by loving those around us. So that's our theme, uh, our messages for the week, our scripture passages to consider. Um, I pray that this has been a blessing for you and that the Lord would be with you and your family. Oh.